You are listening to Myth Behaving, a podcast with a little bit of attitude on the literary world. Won't you come Myth Behave with us? Hello and welcome to Myth Behaving. This is episode number 23 of Myth Behaving and we're recording on December 15th, 2013. I'm Mayor Wilson, and I'm joined by my co-host, producer, and partner in crime, Miss Carla Clifton. Hey, Carla, how are you today? I am absolutely fabulous. It was my little uh, grandson's 13th birthday party today, so we had a an awesome, it's my first teenager, so... <laughs> So it's kind of exciting. Well, anyway, hello, listeners. Each myth-behaving show features a special guest from the literary world. It could be a writer, publisher, agent, editor, or anyone else connected with the world of publishing. Plus, we have several very special segments related to reading or writing. in the library of a myth behavior. And that means it's time for something from the library of a myth behavior. Today, I'm recommending something different. In honor of the holidays and everything, I wanted to do something a little bit different. We always do fantasy or fiction or sci-fi or mystery or romance, but today we're going to go into nonfiction. Uh, today, I'm recommending How to Import Wine, an Insider's Guide by Deborah Gray. This, not everybody, of course, is going to be into importing wine, but for those who are interested, uh, she's got personal stories in this that really bring home some of the things she's learned, and that makes it a very, very interesting book. But what I really like about this is I think she's nailed the how-to genre down. And whether or not you want to learn how to import wine, you can learn how to write a really good, really solid how-to book by reading her book. And uh, I want to make a, a special note about this. I know Deborah from uh, her her work with uh, wine, but also because I went to her when I needed information on wine when I was writing my second book that just released, Portals, and she was invaluable as an, uh, as giving me uh, expert advice on wines I'd never heard of and had no clue about. So check it out if you're interested in wine. It's highly rated. We get all of this great information on how to import. It's very, very well written, ex- extremely well researched. Well, and that must mean our special guest today is Deborah Gray. Welcome to the show, Deborah, and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, um, Mayor and Carla. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you with us just because I've, I've known Deborah, obviously. If I went to her for help, I've known her. For, I, I, I was going to say it's about two years, but it's really going closer on three. It's fun because Deborah is my birthday twin. We Our birthdays are the same day. So she and I have been friends uh, online, but we have become friends in real life as well. We've met each other. So it's always ha- fun to have that, that friend on the show. Um, we got to, in fact, I got to see you, what was it? October was the last time I got to see Deb while I was in uh, in Southern California. Uh, Deborah, could you tell us why you wrote your book? Well, uh, I wrote it originally because there was nothing like that out there. And I, 
I, it happened to come at a time when I'd just I'd been going through fresh out of a painful business partnership breakup. Um, we were just starting off into the recession. And um, so this was 2008. Um, and we all know how, how awful that was. Um, so I was starting a new business then. Um, and I was going to be newly importing in a, a brand new business after having had my um, other business for quite a few years since 1992 and um, also consulting. And as you can imagine, I sort of didn't start off with um, a huge amount of clients and, you know, wine sales and consulting and all that sort of thing. So I thought if I'm ever going to have the time, this will be it. And um, while I was waiting for all those people to um, beat a uh, path to my door, <laughs> I, um, I worked on my book. And um, I, I really did it because there wasn't anything else like that out there. And because my learning curve was so steep that I almost was, you know, going backwards when I first started. Um, I made all the mistakes you can imagine. They were um, expensive mistakes. They were time-consuming mistakes. They were things that, that cost me dearly. And I think ultimately, it, you know, cost me um, the progress I could have made at a time when um, Australian wines were, were really quite uh, unknown. And so, you know, that's that's really why, of course, I also um, I wanted to contribute something to publishing. And as a, if you don't mind me going on a little bit further with that. Please do. Please. Um, I also thought that perhaps it was at a, a, you know, it was something, again, starting a new business. I had been known somewhat, you know, as a small uh, importer. But I wanted to sort of raise my profile, my exposure, and give a little bit more credibility to my business. So those were all the factors in the mix. That's, you know, and those all feed together, too, and they're they're all interconnected. I think that's that's really Im important. Um, I like that you wanted to and you do share a lot of the, the the painful stories of your learning experience in your book. And and I think that's important. And I think that's part of why it's uh, been such a success, I think, uh, you know, within your particular genre. Yes. And, and I really um uh, it is something that people often comment on too, um, that they like the fact that there are sort of real life um, illustrations of what can happen or why you don't do a certain things a certain way. Um, what happened, you know, as the as this process unfolded and how you could do it differently in a very, um, a, you know, clear sort of way. Because, because I think examples and even painful um, lessons are good ways for people to learn. I agree. Of truth and mythery. Of truth and mythery is a segment where we take a commonly held publishing or writing belief and examine whether it's true or just another myth. Deborah, please feel free to answer this. Researching a nonfiction book is crucial to writing a nonfiction uh, book. Is that true or is it a myth? 
I think that one is really true. You know, I'm a real um, seat of the pants girl when it comes to many things in life, um, including fiction, which I have, you know, had a stab at um, in, prior to this. And I don't think you can do that with, uh, maybe you can do it with some nonfiction. I, I, I think there's a, you know, there's a sort of a flow with, with certain nonfiction. I don't think, um, so if I were to answer this a little bit more um, uh, narrowly, in terms of a how-to, and of course in some other non-fiction um, uh, uh, sets, you know, that you, of books, um, it's important that you're clear, um, that you sort of have a linear approach to it, I think, because um, you can't leave out things if you want the reader to make sense of it and follow it without making those mistakes, or if they were fuzzy-headed about it and they sort of took a, a stab at it and it didn't really work and they couldn't figure out why because some of the instructions are, are, are not there. And I don't do instructions like a, a manual um, or a set of instructions for putting together a bookcase or something. This is, it's not My writing style isn't like that at all. It's very conversational. But I want to. I think that it is important. Just again to answer your question, I'm a little bit more detailed than that than just that simple answer. But I think absolutely that is a, a true statement and not um, not a myth. You you mentioned that you've written other books. Do you have any other books planned? And if so, are they nonfiction or fiction? Well. The one I'm about uh, three quarters of the way through right now is um, a, a non, another nonfiction, and it's in the wine world again. Um, and I've got a few other things that I have. Uh, I'm part way through um, uh, fiction, memoir, various things. But this is the one that is most compelling to me right now. It's time for Myth Print. Tips and Tricks of the Industry. Well, it's time for another one of our special segments. MythPrint includes a basic tip concerning writing, marketing, or anything else to do with the industry. Deborah, do you have any tips on how to get a nonfiction book published that you can share with our listeners? And is it the same process as a fiction? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is, uh, and this is where it's different from fiction, you know, they say every story has been told. It's just a, a twist on them. And, and whether you're, it's um, mystery, science fiction, uh, you know, dystopian, whatever it might be, romance, um, of course everybody has a unique way of telling a story. But there are... Um, common themes and threads and ideas out there. I think with nonfiction, although of course there are, there are people's own version of um, nonfiction uh, writing, um, uh, their look at, at perspective on travel or uh, to a location or how to enter an industry, that sort of thing. But for me, the big thing was finding um, a niche that was untapped. And I truly knew there was not another book on wine importing out there. 
And the funny thing is that I um, came about this is in a very different way than most uh, fiction queries take place. First of all, um, when you're querying nonfiction, you usually do it with an outline, um, a table of contents, maybe some uh, first chapters, but you, you, it's not usually finished or it, it doesn't have to be. Um, but the way I came about this was I called a publisher, something I would never normally think to do, but they had no pub uh, submission guidelines on their website. And so I rang them knowing that they were a preeminent wine book publisher and that I really wanted to submit um, a query and my outline, etc., to them. And But I needed to know what their submission guidelines were. And when I, uh, I rang them, um, I was passed along to the editor. And one of the first things he said to me after he asked me what my book was about, he said, oh, there's nothing like that out there. So I said, I know. That's That was what my research led me to believe. So I think one of the things that, although everything can't be unique and everything can't be the first out there, uh, I think it's important to find the niche that is untapped, whether it is um, a particular take on a subject or a something that that is really going to be compelling that people will want to publish, and secondly, that you uh, you can do proposals as long as you've got a very good idea and an outline and something that is is quite recognizable to the publisher in their making their decisions. I think that's really interesting. Uh, you know, I'm getting ready to do a biography next year, and uh, I, I'm sure I'm going to be learning a lot from you today on on the nonfiction aspect. I, I find it fascinating that you it's unlike fiction where you can't just send them a few chapters. You have to send them the whole book. They, they want it done. Uh, that's that's right. Well, sometimes with non nonfiction, you know, it's you're you're figuring out if there's even a market for it. You know, right in the beginning, uh, and whether there in fact is any need for a book out there of this type. So I think a lot of times people are doing proposals and they're doing those outlines and tables of contents and things like that, and very specific submission guidelines um, from different publishers, just as there is for fiction, but. Um, it's you know as you say it's it it does work like that where um you can sort of it in a very organized fashion you can throw a few things against the wall and see what sticks and with just to address yours color with the biography though i think that that it's all about how you're going to approach that biography how you're going to unearth things that maybe nobody else has or maybe it's the very first time anybody's looked at that character. So um, it could be very interesting. Yeah, I think it will be fun to do. You know, writing is a, a process of so many things. What do you love most about what you do, Deborah? Well, you know, I know this sounds a bit trite, but I love the words. I love constructing sentences, finding the right words to convey what I want to say, not necessarily the cleverest words. You know, I mean, I like having a good vocabulary. I like knowing the definition of words. I enjoy it. But it's not about that. It's um, it's about ha being happy with how it looks and um, 
being feeling a, a, a sense of uh, satisfaction that you've said it in a way that it's going to um, resonate with people. That's a very good answer. Now, is there anything about the writing process that you don't like? Well, I'm not too fond of continually editing. <laughs> I don't know that anybody is, but I actually, I do like the first edits because, you know, when your work is really raw and you've just gotten it down on paper, going back and refining it is quite um, uh, also satisfying. Um, and you're, you're, you know, shaping it and you're, um, and it's, you're, you're getting it into a condition that you, you feel much uh, happier with. But it's all those repeated passes added, and it's going through and checking it again for uh, punctuation, and you know all of that that drilling down editing. That after a while, I don't even want to look at my own work. So, <laughs> <laughs> in fact, this is a t this is a this is a very bizarre thing to to admit. But when I got my um, my book you know when it, when I was sent advanced reader copies and I was so excited about them and I got them and I could hold my book in my hand you know and I, I looked at it and I showed it to people and I felt it and held it and all of that I didn't read it and do you know that it was only about a year later that one person and I've sold this book has sold um if I can be you know not too immodest about it has sold really quite well and it's it has taken one person and one person only to tell me that there was an entire chapter missing oh wow no Yes, something I didn't know, my publisher didn't know. Fortunately, it wasn't in the scheme of things, you know, something critical, but I certainly worked on it and would have liked to, to, to have been in the book. So um, I think that forcing yourself to read your book would be a helpful thing, even when you're <laughs> sick of it. <laughs> I can see why it would be. Well, Authors work in so many different ways. Are you a planner outlining everything and making extensive notes, or are you a pantser flying by the seat of your pants and letting your bo book go wherever it will? Well, as I said, I am definitely a, a life pantser, I think. Um, pantser. I think I, I'm like that very much with fiction. I've written a murder mystery before, and um, oh, that just definitely, and, and much to... Uh, my detriment, I think, because I lost track of, of days and people and characters. And I realized at some point that they couldn't possibly have gotten from this place to this place, you know, in that amount of time. And um, certain people weren't, weren't in the room and I had them speaking, you know, all of that sort of thing. But um, with a nonfiction, I think it's essential um, that you uh, outline and you make extensive notes. And what was really important to me, and this was this is my first nonfiction book. It's my first published book. So I uh, taught this to myself that I had to lay out, um, first of all, a, a proposed table of contents so I could see a sense of where I was going. It kind of is like a story in a way because in importing, and it was also about distribution, you're starting out with 
thinking about what wines that you want to have, then selecting the wines and sourcing the wines and then putting together a portfolio. And then you're going through your business setup and your regulations and then you're putting together your container and you're importing and so on. I don't want to be too boring, but there is definitely um, an organization to what I wanted to um, uh, convey and how I needed to organize my thoughts to make sure I didn't leave things out. And it was very helpful to me. That's that's very intricate. <laughs> it really is. really is for, for planning. Um, I, I should probably be taking notes on this. Deborah, you've told us a little bit about uh, what you've got planned. Would you um, go into your, your very next project? What is that one going to be? Yes, this is um, a, a kind of a um, an interesting thing for me, a dilemma for me. That's what I really wanted to say because this is a book um, aimed at wineries outside the U.S., looking to find a point of entry into the U.S. for their wines. So this is actually starting with the foreign rights aspect, which is something that people normally go into later or hopefully have an opportunity to um, to be a part of. And this is starting from that where um, I wanted to give um, a an overview and an in-depth look at the U.S., for foreign wineries because it's so competitive and they're facing such obstacles. And I really think I'm a bit of a champion of the underdog because I watch these wineries struggling on LinkedIn and I get sent so many emails every week myself from people who are looking to to find an importer. They want to get their wines here. They love their wines, they love their vineyard, and they think everybody in the U.S. is going to feel the same way about them, but they're making really rudimentary mistakes in their approach. And once again, I thought, well, there's nothing else out there like that, so maybe I can do something to not only help them, but to get something else in the uh, pipeline um, that is new and different. That sounds very exciting. And I think that you are just, you have this intuitive way of finding these little niches that you're making your own. And I, I applaud you for that. Well, thank you. <laughs> I hope so. I'm not really sure how this one's going to go. I just um, feel compelled to write it and I'm almost done. And it's one of those things that I think any writer feels the same way. When that's in your brain, you know, it's sort of forcing it, its way out onto the pen and you're not satisfied until you get it done. I can certainly understand that. Well, we've seen a lot of changes in the publishing industry in the last couple of years. Do you feel the changes have impacted your own work? And if so, in what ways? How do you feel about those changes? Well, I don't know about my own work, but I certainly, and Maya knows a little bit of this, know it has impacted my own publisher. Um, and I think in the same way that it's impacted many uh, small publishers. And this, as I say, is, a, I was going to say was, but hopefully still is and still will be, um, you know, quite a well-regarded um, wine book publisher. I did my research on this publisher and or and on books in wine books in general, and found a lot of them were published um, by this particular publisher. But um, when Borders went out of business, 
Um, that was one of their big customers, um, the Borders book chain. Um, right. When things changed so that traditional wasn't the, uh, uh, the vanguard of publishing anymore and people were doing far more in um, mainstream self-publishing and um, e-books and etc., I think it's changed it for everybody, not just um, you know, not just uh, me or nonfiction or my publisher, but it has certainly impacted my publisher because they are in the process of reorganizing, and hopefully that is a positive thing for me and the rest of their authors. Um, but it's been a struggle for them. Yeah, those books, those bookstores closing with the the advent of of, of the ebooks becoming so popular, but but still the lion's share of books, from what I understand, is is bought from the brick and mortar stores. Yes, I, I I think that my particular publisher didn't have a lot of cushion. You know, I think there's there are people like that when you're in. It doesn't matter what industry you're in, if they are. Um, if they're on the edge a little bit or if they have overextended themselves, um, it takes a lot for them to sort of come back from the brink or to uh, reorganize it. And, uh, and I do think that they will, and I think that there are hopeful signs that they will. Um, and as you say, um, you know, definitely there are um, uh, the brick-and-mortar stores and, and uh, you know, and Funnily enough, with with my book, um, people seem to want to hold it more than they do want to have an ebook because they make notes, um, they underline. I had one guy send me a photo of all the notes he had taped up to the wall behind his desk or in front of him, you know, but the wall at, at his desk um, that were referencing chapters in my book. So you know, it's <laughs> there's still some value <laughs> to having that sort of. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, published books and and hopefully publishers that can put them into libraries and universities and whatever the case may be. Yeah, that that's those are avenues that not everybody is able to get into, which are, are fabulous avenues. So uh, uh, that's that's probably a whole another show to talk about about that end of it. But yeah, so many changes. I was really shocked when I saw that. That um, that the ebooks had such a small share of this last year's sales because I would have, I'm I'm big on ebooks, so uh, the whole thing that print was a bigger deal was surprising for me anyway. Yeah, that's surprising to me even now when you say that because I think I hear all the time about people switching over, you know, to their Nooks and Kindles and everything. And and I personally haven't done it, but I, um, I'm i not opposed to it. I just find that people say that to me about my book. And, and I know that, of course, we all feel that way about certain books we want to have that are signed or first editions or we want to just have them in a – you know, I have a library guest room that I, I love seeing the books on those shelves. The myth number is. And now it's time for myth number, our word for the day. And today's phrase, instead of word, is nonfiction. There are so many types of nonfiction books out there. Deborah, what do you think makes a how-to book, or, or tell us what makes a how-to book different from the other nonfiction genres other than the obvious that it's a how-to book? What else makes it different? 
Well, gosh, I, I'm not exactly sure that I'll have a definitive answer because there are, um, there's a, you know, broad uh, categories of, of nonfiction. And so it's going to look very different from um, a biography or it's going to look very different, you know, from a, a, a travel book or something like that. Um, but one thing that's, as which I um, was explaining before that's really important is not to miss out any steps. Um, I'm, as I said, also, I'm not um, a you know, one, two, three, like an instruction booklet uh, for putting together, a, you know, a, a new piece of equipment. But uh, I'm very conversational in my in my writing. But I don't want people to have a missing um, piece of the puzzle because that could affect how they how they do business. That that make that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Well, Deborah, if you could have. A dinner party with any seven people, living, dead, or fictional. Who would you include? Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm not sure that that wouldn't change from, you know, day to day and week to week. And I also think, um, in thinking about it, my list would probably be very boring because it would reflect on what a lot of people would say. But I might have a couple of additions there. Um, my list, I think, would include um, the Dalai Lama, Buddha, um, Moses, because I'd like to know what really went on there <laughs> as they as they crossed the desert and the handing down of commandments and all sorts of things. What what's Moses' take on that? Um, I think uh, Oprah would make a very fun um, a dinner companion. Um, Mother Teresa, because I'd just like to meet her and hug her. Um, and my father, because he's passed away and, and I, that, that's the person I would most love to see again. And, um, I was thinking about this, you know, this is going to sound really weird, but Brian Jones, who was one of the members of the Rolling Stones, and he was one of the original members of the Rolling Stones. He was also um, my uncle's patient. My uncle had a drug rehab. Um, he was a doctor in London, and he had a, a, a practice that included a lot of, you know, people in that um, field. And one of them was Brian Jones. And everybody said that Brian Jones died of a drug overdose. Um, but there are people who said he was murdered. So I'd kind of like to ask Brian what really happened. A little odd, I know, but, you know, you asked me. <laughs> I think it's a fabulous list. <laughs> I do, too. Thank you. <laughs> Deborah, what question do you never get asked that you wish someone would ask? And what would your answer be? You know, I have not thought about this. And I'm, I'm not sure that I have an answer. Isn't that terrible? And what would you answer? Because I think I'm often at quite an open book. Um, I'm not really reticent. You know, I'm, I will talk. Uh, I have a lot of conversations with people. Um, I think that, um, I wish maybe 
a long time ago when I was first starting out, I wish someone had asked me what I really wanted to be and to really think about that. And I could have started writing a lot sooner. Maybe that's the answer. <laughs> well, that's that would be an interesting question. Yeah. Well, everyone has their own personal myths, things a lot of people think about us that may or may not be true, their own personal myth behaviors. What myth behavior do people believe about you that is absolutely not true? Well, absolutely might be stretching it, but I think people in general, especially, you know, people I know and, and, and friends and family and acquaintances and that would think that I am far more self-confident than I really am, that nothing phases me and that I really, am, um, you know, have uh, an abundance of self-confidence. So I would I would call that a myth. <laughs> you do come across that way. You do come across very <laughs> self-confident. Thank you. You're welcome. Now, what myth behavior do people believe about you that really is true? Well, it's funny because this is a bit of a flip side to that, and that I'm I'm pretty fearless when it comes to being adventurous and trying new things. Uh, I mean, I. I love to experience new things, even if it, when I say fearless, I mean, I will leap into the void, but doesn't mean I'm without fear by any means. But um, I do think that people know that uh, I'm, I am very much that way. um, And uh, that I will, uh, that I just love, I love having adventures and I love trying new things. I think that keeps us young. Yeah, it keeps us young. It's fabulous and it keeps us young. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And and honestly, isn't that what life is about is experiencing new things and, you know, adding that to the memory bank and all, you know, the, it's, I think it's just, uh, it's essential. <laughs> I agree. I totally agree with you. Well, Deborah, it's that time. Uh, the end of our show. Thank you so much for being our guest. We appreciate your information and sharing with us. Yeah, you've given us so much to to look at and think about, and given us a fascinating look at what you do. Um, I'm I'm going to look forward to that new book coming out. Thank you very much to both of you. This was really fun. Um, you, you got me thinking in new directions, and um, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, thank you. And remember, everyone, you can go to MythBehaving.com for more information on Deborah Gray and links to her books. You can also read her bio and find links to her social media. And don't forget, you can download this episode on iTunes or listen right on the MythBehaving.com website. Please take a moment to leave us a positive feedback on iTunes. And you can subscribe to us there, too. Well, thanks again for tuning in to MythBehaving. We'll see you again next time. I'm Carla. And I'm Mare. And we are MythBehaving, where reality meets fantasy. See you soon. <laughs>